Welcome to The Vampire Squid, a podcast about increasing transparency and education in finance. This is your host, Alan Lee, and welcome to episode 21 of The Vampire Squid. This will be part two of last week's episode with Charlie O'Donnell, where we cover venture capital and entrepreneurship. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about early stage investing versus later stage investing, uh, some of the pros and strengths of New York compared to San Francisco for technology investing, um, and things like why venture capitalists can be seen as quote-unquote jerks and you know how to help change that perception. So I hope that you guys enjoy. As always, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, please feel free to visit me on my website, thevampiresquid.com, and you can always drop me a note there. So I will now turn it over to our interview. You know, after you did entrepreneurship, you went back into uh, VC at first round. Yeah, after we ran out of money. <laughs> after you ran out of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that uh, sort of startup and operational experience, did you feel like you were a better investor um, uh, or able to help out more? It's, um, you know, I, I was having a conversation with one of the new analysts at Union Square Ventures last night, actually, and, and we were talking about, you know, how, how long it takes to get good at being a, a VC and pattern matching. And, and there's sort of two things that I think happens. And, and, and one is there's just like a certain amount of time it takes to, to see enough stuff. And you go from like this level where any reasonable business person could turn down nine out of the 10 deals that you see and, and you'd be right because right? they just don't make sense. Mm-hmm. Somebody who's been in venture for a year or so could turn down 95% of the deals, right? Because that extra 5%, you start to understand venture math and, and how big something needs to be. And you get a sense of, you know, sort of whether you think an entrepreneur is capable or, or what tech is buildable or all that sort of stuff. Then it takes a long time to go from that 95% to 98%. And that I think is a six or seven year process, to be honest. I mean, if you, I go back through my career and I, I look at like, you know, I, I started joining deal teams for direct deals at GM probably in like 2003. Mm-hmm. And I started leading deals at first round in January of 2010. So it took about seven years for me to get that far in my career. When Fred Wilson was an analyst in 1987, and he became a partner at that firm in 1994. This is a seven-year time frame. Hmm. Um, I, I think there's something to that. I think it's, you know, maybe multiple, you know, a, a full cycle. Um, you know, it takes seven years on average for a company to exit. So, you know, your, your first deals, you don't really see the the outcomes or the direction of your first two years worth of deals until years six and seven or eight. And so, yeah. you know, seeing whether you actually did well or not, um, which is different than being somebody who like is an angel investor in cruise automation. And, and a year later, you sell to GM for like a billion dollars. Like that's a little bit lucky, right? You didn't get yeah. to see somebody like build a company over time and, and you know, uh, ask questions about the market and strategy and all that sort of stuff, right? You just happen to drop some money in a white hot space and, <laughs> and, and, you know, with 
automakers scared that, you know, no one's going to drive a car anymore. Um, and so, you know, it's, uh, so there's that, there's that timeline, but I also think it's, um, being lucky enough early enough. And, you know, as I look at my career of leading deals, um, at first round capital, I was there for two years. Uh, frankly, it was only supposed to be there for one. Um, it was mm-hmm. more of a, hey, come here and hang out and build out our New York presence. And, you know, I, I kind of stuck around a little bit. And in two years, I invested in seven companies and two of them exited during that time period. And uh, Within the two years? Within the two years. Wow. So GroupMe went to uh, Skype and single platform sold to Constant Contact. And since then, uh, Backupify sold to Dotto. Uh, Refinery29 is a huge company now. Chloe and Isabel is a huge company now. So I, you know, it's a, not a big portfolio, but for a two-year stint, yeah. I mean, that worked out really well. I mean, when all is said and done, that portfolio is probably going to be a six or seven X portfolio, maybe even more. And so, um, you know, had I not had that kind of track record, I probably would not have been able to raise my first fund. You know, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, double O agents who, you know, need a, need a second kill. You know, like if you, you get one exit, people are like, ah, oh, maybe you got lucky, but you get two. Okay. Yeah. Now you seem to maybe you're fishing in the right pond here. And, and, and so like that experience is, is not, is, is atypical. So whatever you want to call atypical things, I mean, I have no problem calling it luck that, <laughs> That not that I it wasn't lucky that I picked good companies. I think it was lucky that I had the exits that I did to be able to show that I had an interesting track record to raise a fund. Yeah. Same thing in the first fund at Brooklyn Bridge, Canary, which is one of the top performing portfolio companies, showed up early in the fund, and so, you know, had Canary been the thirty fifth deal in Fund One. We'd be talking about how I'm still fundraising for fund two. Yeah. Uh, because we just would not have been able to see two years of amazing performance from that company. So I was lucky that that within the first year of investing, you know, popped up. And so we, we got to see that company making real revenues and showing that it's, you know, probably going to be a fund, uh, multiple fund returning company. And, uh, you know, that's just a, a timing thing that happens. And that's, a real key thing with first-time funds is you put the fund to work and you hope that something pops early because for the second fund, you, you really don't usually have a ton to show. Interesting. Very interesting. I wonder with the uh, the seven-year rule, if that mm-hmm. sort of correlates to that 10,000-hour rule where you takes it that time to get good at something. Uh, you know, perhaps. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of it is the external factors of, you know, Cycles changing and, sure. and, and companies, um, you know, uh, companies going through cycles because I, I wouldn't count on VCs as putting in a lot of hours per se. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, may, maybe hours on Twitter, but you know, um, yeah. it's, uh, it's just the world around you is going to change a few times in that, that period. And so it's sort of good to see that from, from end to end. Okay. And, uh, you know, as you're raising your, you know, fine. And I know you closed your last one and ha- was it a third of the time that it took for the, yeah, the first one? Um, you know, so I, my first fund, I announced that there was a thing called Brooklyn Bridge Ventures and 
obviously for SEC reasons, you need to be very careful about exactly what you announce. So I was like, well, I'm doing Brooklyn Bridge Ventures. And, you know, I didn't say it was a fund. And I didn't say it was, you know, $8 million. And didn't say what the fees were or all that. And you kind of hope people figure it out and, you know, email <laughs> you and ask about it, right? And, and I got very lucky that a big institutional investor did. And, and they said, hey, you know, saw what you've been up to and, um, you know, do you want to talk and how might you be a fit to what we're doing? And, and they wound up being my, my anchor investor. But, you know, it took nine months to get to a first close, to get to a critical mass of people who are interested in closing, to get to terms that everybody was interested in. And mm-hmm. um, and then from, from that point, from September of 2012, it took about 15 months from first close to last close. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, while I got my largest investor right off the bat, um, it was not easy sledding from there. And so I have 50 limited partners, three institutions, you know, family office type entities and and 47 individuals. And so I was nickel and diming it towards the end (laughs) and, uh, you know, really talking to a, a fair number of people and, you know, first time fund is not the easiest thing in the world to close because you're, you're telling somebody about what could be. And for a second time fund, you're, you're showing people, this is what we did. Yeah. And, and not that it's no longer a, this could work. It's like, let me show you how this is working. You know, let me show you that I started out with a certain type of focus and I, I, did those things that I said I was going to do and here are some good companies and look at them working and, you know, that's the portfolio is going in the right direction. And so do you want to come back again? And so um, the vast majority of the investors from the first fund came back and, and who brought a friend. And so, you know, almost two thirds of the fund was closed in the first close actually. And so I was, mm. you know, the only reason why it even took five or six months is I was a little bit lazy about it and, yeah. and, you know, really only spending five to 10% of my time fundraising and, and mostly funding on putting the money to work. Mm-hmm. And thinking about your mindset as you're starting your first fund, you know, what were some of the, the doubts that you had or, and how did you, you know, get over that? Um, I'm a pretty confident guy and I, I think it comes from, my experience and I still feel like I am in the beginning of my career compared to, you know, some of the people who have invested in my fund, like Brad Feld is an investor and Josh Koppelman is an investor and Howard Morgan and Marty Mannion from Summit. And, mm-hmm. you know, they all have, you know, 15, 20 year, you know, and, and Howard's case even longer, you know, kind of, kind of track records. And, yeah. uh, you know, so I'm, I, you know, barely scratched the surface yet. But I did feel like I, you know, had been in the asset class at the time for 11 years and seen a lot of good fund performance and, and you know, understood how fund math works. And, you know, I built a, built a model for, you know, this is my expectations out of a venture fund. And, here's how many deals need to be winners and here's my number for what a winner is. And so mm-hmm. I, I went into it with the confidence of like, look, I've, I've been doing my homework in the space for over a decade and I've been plugged into the New York ecosystem at the time for seven years. And, and I know everybody here and, and I'm one of the most visible folks here. Yeah. And because 
you know, the compounding effect of network building, right? If you, you know, been blogging now for 12 years, I have a fair amount of readers, not because the writing's any good, because, you know, you start out with a few and then they invite a few more and, you know, 12 years later, it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's like when all of a sudden your grandma realizes she has money because she's been around for, you know, 90 years and, and you know, her little <laughs> weekly savings turns into something at a, at a certain point. And so... Um, you know, I think, uh, so I felt like I could do it and I felt like I had created a model that, that worked for me and that took advantage of my skill sets. And I, what I didn't do was say, I'm going to raise a big series A fund or a growth fund, and you know, some stuff that I'd never done before. And I said, well, you know, I, I've been looking at early stage stuff. I've been very actively involved in the community. And so my investors bet on me to find interesting stuff coming out of the tech community in New York early, period, mm-hmm. right? They're not betting on me to decide whether or not Airbnb at $25 billion is a good bet. But that's not what I do. Like I didn't come out of the summits or TAs or insights or fidelities or all that sort of stuff. Like that's a different skill set. You know, my skill set is poking around in the community, talking to interesting people, getting an early sense of like, oh, hey, that could be a thing. And, uh, you know, I've I've learned how to become a better board member. You know, I, I give a lot of credit to Josh at first round for, for helping me through that. I still, you know, ask him questions and, and uh, you know, I've got to, um, you know, sit on some boards with some other um, experienced VCs and, you know, I was on two boards with, with Anne from Floodgate and, uh, Refinery29 and Chloe and Isabel. And, and, mm-hmm. you know, those were really, really good experiences. And so I'm, I'm still learning how to be a better board member, but I'm, you know, I think it's important to, to build out a career that where you're, you're within your skill set, right. And you're taking advantage of what you know how to do and you're self-aware enough to say, well, you know, here's something that, I wouldn't necessarily count on myself for. Got it. And, you know, being in New York and uh, maybe some people that are interested in doing tech or VC in New York, what do you think are some of the pros or some of the strengths of New York compared to Silicon Valley? Or where does New York excel in tech where it might not excel as well in Silicon Valley? Sure. So um, first and foremost, I'm a New Yorker. Right. And so when everybody asks me to sort of compare cities, I say, well, where do you want to live? And, you know, because lifestyle and happiness and all this sort of stuff, like you, you should never move to a place where you're going to be inherently unhappy because you think that some career goal is, is going to be better satisfied. And so New York works for me. The, I've always had this, this multi industry interest. It's reflected in my portfolio. I'm invested in a brick and mortar ice cream shop called Ample Hills and, you know, a, uh, a group of guys who are running a hedge fund on top of daily fantasy sports. So like, you now I'm working on a, um, a deal that is an alternative to composting. So you, you could not get a more diverse portfolio than that. And, I don't think you can get a more diverse portfolio in anywhere but New York, um, where, you know, we're not a one industry town. And, you know, look, San Francisco is the, in the Bay Area is the tech capital of the world. 
But that's the only thing it's the capital of, basically. And, and, yeah. and New York is the capital of multiple industries, and all of whom are being affected by by technology and innovation. And so that's just more interesting to me. Um, I don't like having to have a jacket on all the time. And so, <laughs> you know, like today happens to be cold, but last week it was warm enough not to have a jacket. And, you know, in San Francisco, jacket weather is the only weather that they have. And, um, but, but over and above that, I think, you know, uh, I think the San Francisco tech community is a little bit of a, of an insider's game because there are people with multi-cycle, multi-generational track records. And you could go into San Francisco and, and ask people like, who are the best investors? And, there are people who've been doing it for a long time and you are just definitively not as good as they are because you don't have the same networks and you know um you funded the team that facebook bought to run whatever their new thing is and now you have that network right and it yeah. and it, it just feels very hard to break into that um there's a little bit of a of a monoculture in that um you know it's Founders are mostly technical, um, you know, people sort of go after things that look like what they've seen before. New York, you know, companies kind of fall out of the sky here and, and you know, no, very few people have a background in it. We're kind of figuring it out. And I think, you know, we have a much more open ecosystem where, you know, it's okay to ask a stupid question because, oh, yeah, well, you know, you've never done a customer acquisition strategy before. And so the company next door to you who figured it out is probably more willing to, you know, spend a little time with you. And, uh, you know, so I, I think that is the kind of culture that I want to be, um, be a part of. I think the key questions for any city, for any founder looking to, to start up in a city is, can you get funded? Can you hire and can you find customers? And if your city can answer, you can answer yes to all three, then it's a startup city. It's a legit startup city. And New York can definitively answer yes to all those three. Now, you know, can we build companies the size of Amazon or Facebook? Well, we haven't built nearly as many of them, many of them as the Valley has. Um, but I think it's very possible. Sorry, I'm just going to plug in. Okay. Okay, and uh, sorry for the disruption. the uh, The battery went out in the laptop, but <laughs> I am uh, I'm back here with your, the, your finance guy ThinkPad. <laughs> my ThinkPad, but I am I'm back with Charlie, and um, we were just on the topic and uh, talking about his favorite ice cream. But um, I know that we're a little bit short on time, and mm-hmm. you have to go to your other meetings. But uh, well, they're coming here, so uh, you know they haven't walked in yet. So it's 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 up to you how how much you want to bore your audience with adventure ramblings. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they find this very, very <laughs> helpful. Um, you know, the goal of the podcast is to help increase transparency and education in finance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you're, you know, obviously doing a great job of expanding community and venture capital. You know, how do you think uh, we could better change the perception of people in finance? You know, it's funny because somebody asked me yesterday, like, why are all VCs, and they sort of hesitated. I was like, 
jerks? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, kind of. And I said, well, you know, first of all, not all of them are, but there's a self-selection bias, and it is seen and talked about as a job where you, you pick winners. And not that you you get on the train of winners that are already leaving the station, but that somehow your picking, you know, made that that deal. And so there's a there's a narrative around venture that like we're doing a lot more than, than we are. Mm-hmm. Um and and the picking part is is actually the smallest part of it. And so, you know, we we were talking about you know, sort of the the gender imbalance of investors. And I said, well, you know, I'll bet you that if they wrote VC job ads as service-oriented jobs where your job is to help people um, and help passionate entrepreneurs and be do- be willing to do, you know, whatever it takes to, to help other people um, see through to their vision, I think it would come off as a lot more appealing to a wider variety of people versus, you know, just a bunch of white guys who, who think they're good at picking stuff, <laughs> right? And, and that's what they sort of think the job is. And it's amazing because I get a lot of, you know, uh, recently minted MBAs or whatever who email me and say, Hey, I want to get into venture, blah, blah, blah. And they, they tell me all about their analytical skills. And I was like, no, dude, that, that's, that's what I do. Like, that's my job. You don't pick. Like, you don't know shit. <laughs> and, and your job is to like help the companies. And I also do that, right? But, but someone could be really useful to me because they <clears throat> know how to hire or they know how to do customer acquisition, not because they know which technologies are going to be good. And, um, so all of those people who come in trying to get into venture and telling me how smart they are, it's totally useless. Hmm. All of the people who come in and say, look what all of the help I have provided. That's who I want to talk to, actually. Those are the most useful thing. And I think one thing that was sort of great to see was uh, the former VP of Platform at First Round, Brett Burson, just became a partner there. And, and I think that is... Like, that's the way that people who aren't former entrepreneurs who launch big companies are going to get into venture. You're not going to get into venture because you, at least early stage venture, late stage is a little different, but mm-hmm. but you're not going to get into early stage venture because you're the best person at a spreadsheet. You're going to get into venture because you, you figured out how to scale some kind of assistance to startups. You... You learned from a lot of people. Um, you know, I was having a conversation with um, Harry Stebbings the other day, who does the 20-minute VC, mm-hmm. and he's talked to hundreds of investors. And, you know, I was sort of poking at him. I was like, so, you know, when are you going to join this side of the table? And he says, well, you know, I don't really have that background. I was like, no, but you, you, you've listened to everybody else who's doing this, that probably makes you infinitely smarter about it than most of the people who are actually doing it. And so I, I think that's that's a key, you know, that we need to position venture as something that is helpful. 
Um, I also think one of the main things for um, that I noticed for for lay people or for you know people who just aren't familiar with it is, yeah, I hear a lot of entrepreneurs say, "Well, I don't want to take venture because I want my company to like actually make money." And I want to build a real business because, you know, they look at some business that burned through a lot of capital without creating a, a business or, or losing, you know, a bunch of money. And they say, well, you know, that's that's not real. Right. But, um, you know, Facebook burned through a lot of money for yeah. a long time before they became a tremendously profitable business. And so, you know. There are models out there, and that's what a lot of people are trying to do, and sometimes they fail at it. And when they fail at it, it looks really bad because it just looks like you wasted a hundred million bucks trying to do something and and you know, but you know that's the point right is is that you fund ten businesses and and one of them makes the others look not as stupid, basically, and I think that's um you know where you um you know where you can change the perception of. You know, sort of the growth versus profitability trade-off. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because I have a lot of entrepreneurs that will come in and say, oh, you know, um, it takes us X amount of money to break even. Well, I'm not trying to break even. You know, I'm trying to build a company of a certain size here. And, and if you're breaking even in your first year, you're probably not growing fast enough, frankly. There's, you're probably leaving some money on the table. Yeah. Um, and so that's, I think, a, a thing that um, you know, can be... Um, changed about the perception of venture. Okay. And um, just wrapping up, mm-hmm. uh, for my listeners, uh, you know, for those that are interested in VC, and you mm-hmm. briefly touched on this, that they should focus on helping the companies. Um, any advice or tips for, you know, a young college student looking to go into venture capital? Sure. So I, I definitely never looked to go into VC when I was a college student. I didn't even know what VC was, but Thanks to shows like Silicon Valley and Shark Tank, yeah, uh, you know, we all know what a what an investor is, and you know, I I think you want to focus on honing a skill. Um, I I don't think it's the kind of thing that is, you know, despite the fact that my first job was in institutional venture, um, I think you're you're probably better off focusing on recruiting or marketing or PR or sales or some things that that tech companies have struggle with um, and getting in and working for one of those companies. Um, but at the same time, I think doing it in such a way where you are um, a builder of community, a builder of network. So you know, don't just become a junior salesperson somewhere, but you know, run that junior salesperson meetup, you know, run the, you know, the customer acquisition podcast or the recruiting blog or whatever and get, really, really good at whatever the thing is that you've decided to um, uh, focus on and, and and help others get better at it and figure out how to scale that help, right? Because it's one thing to, um, you know, just uh, write a blog about, you know, something, but it's another thing where you're like, oh, I started the you know, General Assembly of Sales or Flatiron School of Sales and, mm. and, you know, built this whole conference around it. And wow, like if I were an enterprise B2B fund, well, that'd probably be the person I would look to, to, you know, hire as my next analyst or principal or 
whatever, because they they could help me win a deal, you know, because if there's some hotshot team that's raising their seed round and literally the the woman who's running the sales meetup sits across the table and she's giving them all these tips and advice, like they're going to be like, oh, I want her on my board, you know, yeah. versus like somebody who's like, Poking it around in your financials and, and you know, <laughs> you're sitting there going like, dude, I've been running this business for the last year. Like you've literally spent 15 minutes with this and you're asking all these crazy bullshit questions. And so, um, I think that's where people can, um, improve their chances the most of, of getting into ventures. Get, get good at something that's useful to a startup. Cool. Um, Charlie, this is, uh, very, very fun and very helpful. And, uh, Happy to do it. Yeah, thanks again for coming on. No problem. All right.